If we have Bibles with us, please uh, open them. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 11. We'll actually be starting from a ver- just a couple verses before in, in 1028, but, but most of our time in 11. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we do have the text on the screen, of course. Um, let's pray before we start. God, I pray that you would give us ears to listen to your word this morning that even when we encounter some challenging things in it, that you would use those, you would use it to operate in us, that that we would hear and respond, even when it's hard, in Jesus' name, amen. So I recently, uh, I heard an economics program, I listened to a show called Planet Money on NPR. It's really good on economics. And um, one, one of the uh, episodes they had that was super interesting is uh, a couple of Yale economists were studying why farmers in Africa were not uh, expanding their farms, right? Their, their farms weren't flourishing in the same way that other developing world farms were, like in India or China. And so they, they started investigating this and you know, hey, could it be the land? No, the land was, was terrific. It's perfectly good arable land. And could it be like the, the farming techniques need updating? And no, it's not that either. In fact, they found some, it, it, some incredibly competent and innovative farmers there, but even their farms weren't expanding. They weren't growing and, and flourishing. And so they took as a case this one guy named Blessing. And Blessing was like the top apple farmer in Lesotho. And here's, here's what he figured out. He said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow my apples at high altitude. So he went and got land at high altitude, and his apples ripen about three weeks to a month before everybody else's. So his apples are in the market a month before his competition, giving him this huge edge, right? Like people will travel from miles around to learn apple farming from this guy because he's, he's quite expert, but even his farm wasn't growing. It wasn't flourishing. As they were looking around his operation, they noticed that next to his apple tree farm was a huge, uh, you know, cattle ranching land. And they asked him, Blessing, whose is that? And he said, well, it's mine. And it was these huge tracts of land. They said, well, so you, you keep cattle over there. He's like, yeah. He said, but you're the best apple farmer in Lesotho why are you raising cattle and, and devoting all, why don't you just grow apples over there? He said, here's the thing. Apples make me way more money, but if I, were to, if I were to devote all this to apples, if I had a drought, I lose everything. The risk is too great. And so the cattle, it doesn't make me as much and I'm not as good at it, but if there's a drought, I can at least sell the cattle and survive. Isn't that interesting? Because it's rational. It makes sense to some degree. That risk is too risky. But not taking that risk is the very thing that's holding him back from expanding, growing, and flourishing. Hmm. It's not just true in apple farming, you know. In so many places, the thing that holds us back from growing, from flourishing, is risk. And 
it must be said they are rational fears of these risks. For instance, vulnerability. I'm not saying go be vulnerable with, with anybody you meet on the street, but, you know, like actually divulging the parts of yourself that you hold back from nearly everybody to somebody, whether it's to a close friend or a spouse or, you know, like being genuinely vulnerable in community group or something like that. And some of you guys are like, ooh, that's risky. Like, what if that doesn't go over well? What if I say, you know, the thing that I'm actually holding back and I get rejected? Or people just kind of cringe at me. There's a rational risk there. Yet, if you're never vulnerable, what do you miss out on? <laughs> Some of you guys are counselors I'm looking at. What do you miss out on if you're never vulnerable? If you're keeping everyone just kind of at the Heisman length? You know? This, this thing. Well, you'll never know what it is to be accepted for who you actually are. You'll never be, like, you, vulnerability is a requirement for the level of intimacy that changes character. That makes sense? There's a reason your parents are so formative. It's because it's a very intimate relationship that forms you. There needs to be a sufficient level of intimacy for you to be transformed. You only get a couple of relationships like that in your life, and if you never reach that level of vulnerability, it, you will not be transformed. Like, you miss out on one of the greatest blessings and most healing experiences in the world if, if you never risk vulnerability. Some of us are in a calling that we're not called to. Right? We're doing work, we're doing things that, you know, we know very well this is burning me out, but what a risk it would be to make a change at this point. Taking that pay cut, starting over. That's a risky risk. It might not even work out, right? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> or the risk of showing up in community, letting yourself be known, depending on people. That's risky. Yet, if we don't, if we don't take that risk, which it's perfectly rational not to, bad things can happen. But if you never take it, what happens? You consign yourself to isolation. You consign yourself to surface relationships. It's risky to give of our resources, to be faithfully generous as God calls us to. And you're like, oh, I can really use that money for something. I don't even know what, but it, it, it provides safety for me. It provides security for me. And to, and to part with my hard-earned money in a, in a what, I'm not saying everybody give to grace and peace. Oh, I am. Everybody give to grace and peace. Um, <laughs> but, you know, wh wherever you give it, if you're faithfully generous, then we're doing our job discipling people. But if, if that risk, you know, the fear of that risk just keeps you in that timid place where you're like, eh. I'll give God, I know I've got this much. You know, here's a penny here and there just to assuage my conscience a little bit. And you never take the, the risk of being faithfully generous. Well, you miss out on, on a huge part of discipleship, right? You're, you're locking yourself into Ebenezer Scroogeville 
of, of that, that calcified heart that hangs on to things and doesn't trust and feel like you have to get your own back. It goes on. When we're faced with these risks, it's the very risks that we often need to take in order to flourish, in order to grow, in order to do the work of the kingdom. But man, is it a risky risk. And we're rationally timid about it. And like blessing, yeah, maybe, it would, maybe if I took that risk, it would really pay off in huge ways. But I can't take that risk because, like, what, what, if, what if catastrophe strikes? That seems to be the horns of a pretty airtight dilemma, wouldn't you say? Is there any escape from that dilemma? Well, let, let's start taking a look at our text. Um, I want you to notice, first of all, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 28, this is uh, during the plague of darkness, the, the second to last plague, Moses is, in, is having an audience with Pharaoh. It has not gone well for Pharaoh mainly. Um, it says, then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Okay, so to, to, to recap, uh, Moses has been saying, hey, let us go just have a, a worship service to God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's like, no, and then the plagues come. And Pharaoh's like, well, just the men can go. Moses is like, no, everybody goes or, or, or more plagues. And he says, well, then more plagues. And so more plagues come. And at this point, Pharaoh has reached the point, he said, fine, you guys could go. Just go, go, but leave your livestock. Okay, because like, it was like, hey, you can, the men can go. No, we, women and children have to go too. And they, now he's like, just everybody can go, but leave your livestock. And Moses is like, no dice. And you notice, I, I pointed this out last week. In verse 29, that is a joke. Okay? Like, imagine this. The throne room of Pharaoh, the building that's designed to intimidate anyone. Uh, Pharaoh in the glittering stuff, surrounded by trained killers. Remember that? He said, if you see my face again, make sure you don't see my face again, because I'll kill you. Your life has just been very credibly threatened. And what does Moses do? He says, as you say, I will not see your face. Plague of darkness, totally a joke. Moses makes a funny. Moses, who said, send someone else, when God first called him. Moses, who said Pharaoh won't listen. Moses, who said the people won't listen. Moses, who was easily discouraged, now has his life threatened and cracks wise in the presence of Pharaoh. A little later, when he does exit, he exits in hot anger. You don't get angry at Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets angry at you. Moses don't care what's happened to this dude. He's changed, hasn't he? This is a guy with swag in the presence of Pharaoh. What has happened? That's what I want you guys to keep, in, the, keep in, in your hats. But whatever has happened, Moses realizes that what God told him back in chapter 4, that there will be one final, and it must be said, terrible sign. He realizes it's time for that. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people. 
that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So not only is Moses different on the inside, but his reputation in the land of Egypt has greatly increased. Things have changed. Now, this may sound like Moses left Pharaoh and then God said, go tell him. Really what's happening is it's almost like um, it's the use the force moment where like throughout the whole movie, Ben Kenobi's like, use the force, use the force, use the force. And then when Ben Kenobi's not there and Luke is just flying, he's like, what do I do? What do I do? And he, you hear Ben Kenobi's voice, use the force. And he's like, oh, use the force. Okay, it's, God had told him this back in chapter four. And this is Moses recalling what God had said, right? So this is happening in the same scene. So Moses said, verse four, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. That's not saying I'm going to especially go after slave girls behind the mill. It's an Egyptian idiom for the lowest in society to the highest. Not that that makes it better. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So move right along, because that doesn't present any problems for anybody. No, the, the death of the firstborn. Um, so this final sign, right? Remember, Pharaoh ignored all the previous signs, was warned, is now being warned again. But what do we do with this? Because the death of the firstborn, it makes us all uncomfortable, and that's quite normal, okay? So because we have a shorter text today, I'm actually going to spend a, a little time talking about this. How do we reconcile this terrifying sign with our thoroughly biblical belief that God is a God of compassion, love, and mercy. Okay, so first of all, when we have to look at the scripture and the book of Exodus as a whole, right, God's primary character, the way he shows up most of the time, is as a God of compassion and love famously, you know, the Old Testament, I put that in scare quotes for those listening online, the Old Testament God is, is angry, and the New Testament God forgiving, forgetting about Ananias and Sapphira, and of course Jesus dying on the cross, the most uh, outstanding example of God's wrath being poured out on someone. But uh, really, when, even when we look at the Old Testament, God is always forgiving. He's always long-suffering. He gives people multiple chances, just like with this, right? Like God's primary character is love. Wrath happens. More often, it's threatened, and then people turn away from whatever they're doing. But it, 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 it does happen, but it's not primary. It's secondary. 
But I want to suggest that the reason God is so fierce about this is not hatred of Egyptians, but love of his people. Is it possible to be fierce because you're loving? Scary even because you're loving. I want to tell you about a friend of mine. I actually just got to see him last week. Uh, he, his name's Ethan, and I played in a band with him for many years, and my nickname for him uh, was Shrek, because, not because he's green, but because he looks like an ogre. Uh, he is built like an ogre. He's about 6'3", about 230, and his wrists are this big around. Right? I'm not the smallest person in the world. I tried to wrestle him, and in, 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 like when we were hanging out once, he laughed and kind of just wrapped me up in a ball and was like, are you done? I was like, yep, yeah, I'm done. I was helpless, tinfoil in his hands, right? And he doesn't work out, okay? He is physically just ultra big and strong like Shrek. Nicest guy, right? Just doesn't get in fights, doesn't start fights. He's really a peacemaker. It, it, like, he's a, a very gentle person, you know? I trust the guy. I've never seen him lose his temper. I've seen him, you know, kind of cool things down. He's, he's not the one to start problems. One day, uh, back in Nashville, we were, we were hanging out in my backyard. I think we were cooking hot dogs or something like that. And uh, I see Ethan kind of perk his head up, and he's listening. And I was like, what's going on? He's like, and he runs to my back fence. And he's like looking through the slats of the back fence. And, and, and then I see him kind of stiffen like this, and he shouts, do you have your hands on her? And we hear a voice from the other side of the fence, a woman's voice, say, yes. Ethan pulls himself up the top of the fence and takes his gigantic, you know, fully sleeved up arm. He's a rage monster at this point. And he points his hand. There's a guy who, who had his hands on a woman who was beating a woman on the other side of the fence. And he points his hand at her. And he says, you get your hands off of her or blah-bidi-boobidi-boobidi, right? Like, like it's going to get medieval. <laughs> now, from this dude's point of view... The fence has just grown a gigantic, enraged ogre who's telling him he's going to rip his face off. He didn't need telling twice. He ran for it, okay? And Ethan went after him, but he's slow, so slow. He was not catching this too. <laughs> now, you better believe that if that guy did not let that person go, Ethan was ready to break dude's skull and could have done it, probably probably with his, you know, just flicking it, you know. Now, I want to ask you, is, is that because he's a hateful person? A bad person? A mean person? No, not at all. It's because he's a loving person. He wasn't going to stand for that, right? God's character is love. When we see God's wrath, it is always in defense of his people, Okay? The second thing, we need to remember how guilty Egypt is. We are talking about 430 years of enslavement, harsh enslavement, 80 years of carrying out a genocide of drowning Israelite boys in the Nile. Let's not forget that, okay? 
There is great guilt on them. Not only that, they've ignored all the previous signs. There's been hail, there's been gnats, there's been flies, there's been the Nile turning to blood. Like, most people would tap out at the Nile turning to blood. What'd we do? How do we make this stop? Let the people go. <laughs> Sounds good. Bye, people. Let's not have a bloody Nile anymore, okay? But they didn't, right? In the end, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart up, to the, up till then. So let's not forget that Egypt is guilty. They've, they've ignored the signs. And also, this is requital. Requital means getting back what you gave. If the Egyptians had gotten ponies and ice cream for the Israelites, God would have given them pony and ice, creams. What, ice cream. What did they do instead? They drowned infants in the Nile. Okay, so this particular sign is them getting back what they gave. So God's primary character is love. Egypt is very guilty. Also, we are very poor judges. Question, what makes you and me the standard of justice? Where do we get the standard of justice that we require God to pass under? You ever considered that? If we're going to say, this is wrong of God to do, where are we getting the standard of justice to judge God with? What gives us that right? Also, we're pretty pedestrian. Man, is it easy to say, oh, clutch the pearls, how awful, when you have not been part of an enslaved people who have been victims of genocide. If you had, you might have different feelings. It might not hit you in such a weird way. And by the way, we're a bit hypocritical here. Because the last time our society was in a similar situation, we firebombed German cities and killed millions and said we saved civilization, and we did from the Nazis. Remember that? We didn't just kill the firstborn. We killed everybody. Oh, yeah, we dropped atomic bombs, too. Remember that? So it's a bit hypocritical to say, hey, that was okay because of the dire situation, and then say, how mean is this? So God's primary, primary character is love. Egypt is guilty. We are not good judges. And also, and this is really, really key, whenever we run into something like this where we're a bit like, whoa! And I, when I read it, I'm like, whoa! We have to remember that God is God and we are not. First off, we can only protest this if we believe it happened. Right? We can't say, this, is, this never happened. This is all fairy tale. Isn't that mean? No. You, if you don't think it happened, there's nothing to protest about, right? But if you do think it happened, then we are on the horns of a dilemma because it means there is a God with this kind of power and prerogative. And the thing we have to remember about God is God and we are not is there's a difference between us. It would be horribly wicked for us to do this, but it's not that way for God in the same way that's like, Dad, I want to drive the car. And I'm like, Soji, no, you can't. Why not? You're five. So? You drive the car? I know. I'm Dad. I can drive the car. Right? 
Dad, what are you drinking? I want that beer. <laughs> no, there's different rules for you and me. I'm dad, you are not dad. Right? This is something that we intuitively get. In the same way, God is the author of life. And for God to take life, even, even though it's grim, even though it's serious, right, it is far different than if we were to do this. In the same way that, you know, like, if, if Mark Miller decided to scrape my house, like I wake up one morning and there's a wrecking ball out there. I'm like, Mark, what are you doing? He's like, scraping your house. Boom! Yeah. Like, that's a crime, isn't it? If I scrape my house, we're like, okay, I hope you had a good reason, but it's your house to scrape, right? Like, it, it's not the same thing. We are not God, so we can't take the rules for us, project them onto God. Does that make sense? He is creator, we are creatures. And... You know, even after I give you that explanation and kind of like, like thinking through this, if you're like, yeah, but still, I get it, all right? I, I understand. Can we just trust that God is the just judge of all the earth? Even if you don't get how this works, even if you don't get how this adds up with his loving character, like can we just come to a place where we live with the tension and say, I don't get it, but I trust you, God, right? But let's also attend to the message of the text. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So in the Hebrew text, there's actually a symbol for hard stop. Uh, it doesn't show up in English, but it, it literally, it's a, a symbol that means end of section. This is the end of the first major section of Exodus, and when you reach the end, what do you do? You look back at the whole thing. What's happened so far, right? The people of God, the Israelites, are enslaved, without hope, and God gives them hope. He raises up a deliverer who says what? He makes promises. He makes promises. God is going to perform miracles. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh, the most powerful dude, he's going to overcome the power of Egypt. He's going to let you go. We've come to the cusp of that, right? So God has made promises and delivered on those promises in every way that he said he would. And he's made more promises. He promised Moses, hey, I'm going to bring the people out of Egypt, and you're going to worship me on this mountain, and I'm going to give you a land of your own. So there's past promises that God has fulfilled, and there are future promises that they have to walk into, right? What we're supposed to see when we reach the end of Exodus 11 is that God has kept every promise. And seeing that God keeps his promises should give us hope about his future promises. Now, how does this address that, that risk dilemma, you know? Like, hey, taking that, taking that risk is what's needed for flourishing and growth. It's what's needed for freedom. It's what's needed to, to, to live in victory. It's what's needed for Christ's kingdom. But man, is it risky. Man, could it, could it, could it go badly? The third way here is that we have a promise, and that changes how we look at risk. For those Yale economists who were, who were working with Blessing on his apple farm, 
I said, okay. So the thing that's keeping you from expanding and flourishing as an as a apple farmer is risk, a very reasonable risk. I said, what if, what if we had an insurance policy? An insurance policy that said, if there's, if there's less than this amount of rainfall, you get a cash payout. You can take care of your family. You'll be fine. Would you then take all this land and plant apple trees there? And he said, of course. And so they, they quite literally, you can look this up, they started an insurance company for farmers, right? Advertised it all over the place. And lo and behold, they started taking those risks. They started, instead of, instead of devoting their land, you know, hedging their bets on that risk and, and raising cattle, they, they did what they were good at. They flourished as apple farmers. It was absolutely transformative. So what was the thing that allowed them to, to say, hey, you know what, this risk is actually worth it? It's to have a promise, a promise they could depend on. God has kept every promise. We need to take the risks that we need to take to flourish, depending on those promises. Right? Oh, I can't risk vulnerability. It prevents us from knowing joy and freedom and, and real love and connection. But God has promised that you're his beloved child, right? If the whole world turns against you, he's still for you. Oh, I can't rest. It's too risky to take a day off. I've got too much to do, you know? If I don't max out every moment of every day of, in every week, if I, actually, if I actually don't work a day, I'm going to end up poor and alone. God has promised to bless his Sabbath. <laughs> Those of you guys who have taken this risk and said, you know what, I'm going to risk resting, have found out, oh, I magically, not magically, but somehow I do have enough time to get everything done. It's funny. And you experience blessing. God promises to bless his Sabbath. I can't be faithfully generous. Right? Like, I might need that, that resource to, to protect myself against who knows what. Well, you're never going to learn faithfulness or trust. But Christ said, consider the lilies. They're more gloriously clothed than Solomon. Aren't you worth more than this, this thing that's, that's here today and gone tomorrow? He promises to care for you. I can't risk admitting I'm wrong. If I admit I'm wrong to my spouse, I'm going to get killed in our next disagreement. I can't admit I'm wrong at work. I can't, right? I can't, I can't really, like, repent to somebody. Boy, that holds you back from a lot, doesn't it? Holds you back from reconciliation with people. Holds you, holds you back from receiving forgiveness. But what do we promise? We're promised that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. I can't risk my personal safety. Some of you guys might be called to do something dangerous for the kingdom. In all seriousness. I mean, soldiers are. Cops are. Shelter workers. You name it. Right? Like, taking that risk. It's scary. Personal safety. But it holds us back from, from serving Christ in many situations. We're first of all promised that not a hair of our head falls out, and don't make any jokes, without God's knowledge and permission. 
and also we're promised eternal life. Right? I can't, I can't risk standing up, you know, with the courage of my convictions in a certain situation, not going along with what people want because, you know, like my commitment to Christ won't allow me. And if you don't, if you don't take that risk, I mean, you're consigned to the life of a coward. What does Jesus promise? He promises, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. God has kept every promise. We need to take the risks that we need to flourish, trusting in those promises. How do we do this? Well, you know, in a certain sense, we need to trust God's promises each and every day, right? Like, but then there are certain situations where you where you do are like, oh, it's risky to say I'm wrong. <laughs> oh, this is physically risky, or man, this feels monetarily whatever. You have those opportunities, and you're gonna fail. Right? You're gonna forget everything I just said because I do, and I said it. We're gonna forget that we have these promises from God. It's kind of like um. It's kind of like when when I uh well. I don't really ski, I cross-country ski, and I'm pretty good at most of it, but downhill, I really struggle with still. And, and what I was told on YouTube is that, uh, is that the real key to, to downhill skiing is you're gonna wanna lean back, right? You're gonna tense up, you start feeling yourself good, you like try and fight it, you will fall every time, right? That's your instinct, and your instinct is completely wrong. It will make you fall, and so what you're supposed to do is go against your instinct and do what? Lean forward and just go, right? And I still <laughs> come to a hill, and I am like, okay, lean forward. I know what to do, and I'm like, oh, look at that schmo over there. He fell, and then I'm like, and then I all of a sudden tense up, and I fall, and then like a kid goes by me, boom, no problem. <laughs> We need to ignore that instinct until it becomes instinct, right? That, that's the whole idea with learning to down, how to downhill ski. It's, it's to train a new instinct. And so maybe you'll completely screw up and realize, oh, I was just being timid and I was managing the risk. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm stepping away from this risk because it's too risky. And it's, it's, I know it's preventing me from flourishing, but next time. And then you fail again, and, right, and so on and so forth. It, it's, it's not about batting a thousand here. It's about learning a new way of living. That when we do encounter those risks, that we trust in God's promises, and he keeps every promise. Please pray with me. God, your promises are faithful and true. You have promised to be with us in the shadow of death. You have promised that we rise from death. You have promised that, that you love us, that you care for us. I pray that you would give us the courage that comes with that promise, that we would not step back timidly and live, live lives of, of just settling for less and ma managing our risk, that instead we would courageously and boldly step out in confidence that your promises are there to catch us.